simply as a campaign where we are going to pray for our children and our youth. We as adults are praying for them, and we're going to have three adults praying for each child. And so last week's response was awesome uh, for those who want to participate in praying for our children and our youth. We'll give you more opportunities to do that and clarify what that looks like in the days ahead. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 John. 1 John, can't remember where 1 John is, go to Revelation, hang a left. There's letters right before the book of Revelation, starting a series on true life and real love, a series on the book of 1 John today. You may not remember John, um, the three leading authors of the New Testament are, who would you say is number one? Good guess. Actually, Luke wrote more verses than anyone else. Um, Between Luke and the book of Acts, it contains the bulk slightly more than Paul, even though he has more letters, and then John uh, would be third. They wrote the vast, vast, vast majority of uh, the New Testament, and we're going to look at uh, the letter of 1 John today, starting uh, an introduction to this series. I'm very excited about this series. I I get into every book that I teach, and I, the more I look at 1 John, the more it is both uh, compelling and convicting, and it's life-giving, and at the same time, it kind of drives you to re-examine who you are and your life. It makes you ask certain questions about how you're responding in life. So let's jump in today. John F. Kennedy uh, said in a speech uh, commencement address at Yale University in June of 1962 this, The great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. In other words, many of us, we can spot a lie because it's so brazen, but sometimes there's this myth that comes up, and by myth I mean story, that weaves in an element of truth with an element that's not true, that over time becomes very real as a story. Myth is a powerful enemy. She's subtle, she's sly, she erodes truth over time, crafty, and the precariousness of the myth makes us all susceptible to her lies. A myth can grow and mature as it's reinforced by our culture, our media, media, and our own gullibility. Who among us has not fallen prey to some internet story that we suddenly believe and then it's just close enough to the truth, it has enough elements, it even has pictures that go along with it that make us believe. No, a woman in India did not give birth to 11 boys at one time. No, minions were not inspired by uh, children in Nazi Germany going to gas chambers. No, some woman's rear end implants did not explode while she was doing workout. I mean, we just have these internet myths, and those are in the top 10, according to this week's 
internet myths that are circulating the globe. Perhaps the greatest danger, though, and damage a myth can do, I mean, it can do damage in all arenas of our life, but I have no doubt that the greatest damage it can do is in the, in the arena of faith. Pitted against the truth of God, a myth has the ability to affect how we think, how we live, how we love, how we worship. And we live in an age where enough peop- if enough people say something loud enough and say it often enough and say it for over a period of time long enough, then we will eventually, if we're not careful, believe the myth. Even within church culture, we are susceptible to the power of the myth. No one understands this, I think, better than John. John is writing this letter probably about 20 years after he's written the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written to people who didn't know Jesus so that they could know who Jesus was, so that they could come to life and light and receive the good news about Jesus. Now, some 20 years later, John is writing to those who have received the good news of Jesus Christ, those who are part of the church, those who are part of faith. And he wants to write to them because in the 20 intervening years, 20 plus years that he's written and the church is being established, false teachers have come into the church. We don't know who First John is written to, but we know it's written to a group of believers somewhere. And in their church or in their setting, false teachers have evidently come in who are either saying, Jesus was a good man, but he was not God. Or they're saying Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man. Or they're saying, listen, it doesn't really matter how you live, because once you come into the faith, uh, your, your soul, your inner man, has been redeemed, and your outer man, which is just flesh, is going to fade away, and it's bad anyway, so don't worry about how you live. You can go on sinning and not affect your soul, your spirit man. So John is, a, is writing to these group of followers, these believers, to say certain things about what does it mean to be a real follower of Jesus Christ? How do we tell what is true from what is fake? In 1 John 5, verse 20 through 21, here's the way the message frames it. He says, and we know that the Son of God came so we could recognize and understand the truth of God. What a gift. And we are living in the truth itself in God's Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both true God and real life. Dear dear children, be on guard against all clever facsimiles. Everything that's fake, everything that might look like it, be on guard against it. It may be close, but if it's not the truth, that means it's a fake. It's a copy. It's a lie. So John is going to write to, to be able to say to someone, this is, you can have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. How do we know? He's also writing to say, look, be on guard. Don't, don't let yourself think you can call yourself a child of God and act like this or have a lack of love in your life or believe whatever you want. So he's going to give three tests, so to speak over and over in this book about 
What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? He's going to give a doctrinal test. In other words, there is a truth to be believed. There is information that God gives us, truth that we have to believe. There is a moral test. There is a life to be lived. And there's a social aspect. There are relationships to be honored. And we're going to see this in the weeks ahead. I don't have time to get into all of it now, but what you believe How you act and how we relate to one another reflects the truth of whether we really are children of God or not. For instance, he's going to say, and John is really bold, hey, if you say you love God and don't love your brother, you're a liar. The truth is not in you because how can you love God whom you haven't seen and not love your brother whom you have seen? I mean, you know, we're really reluctant today to say things like that. I love God, but I can live however I please. Nope, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. I mean, we would be reluctant to kind of pull that trigger, you know, to, to kind of, we, oh, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge. And listen, John is not leading us to, to be a judgmental people, but he wants us to face the fact you can't believe whatever you want to believe and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't act however you want to act and say I'm a follower. You can't say I'm going to not love these people and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a bold, bold and confrontational and yet assuring book. So, how do we know if we have real life and real love, true love? I'm going to look at the prologue, which is 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That's the introduction to the book. And I'm going to include verse 5 in it, go a little further. And then I want to give you an introduction to this, but hopefully... The whole thing will be life-giving as we look at it this morning. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, says this. Sorry, I'm having trouble here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We, we write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light In him there is no darkness at all. So this morning I want to kind of introduce the book by saying, how do we know true life and real love? Four points I'm going to give you from this prologue. The first is this. Believe that salvation is by grace. Believe that salvation is by grace. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it to you again. It's on the... Uh, the screen if you like to read along with me that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at at our hands and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life look up here just for a second he's saying jesus that that's who he's talking about here was from the beginning but not only that i can testify john is saying i can testify i've seen him i've touched him I've heard him. He really was 
here. And then he goes on and says, The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's clearly talking about Jesus here. And he's clearly talking about Jesus, who was eternal and has now become a man. But I love the way he frames this, because it's really important. And to me, it is the message of the gospel, the message of grace. And it is this. He calls Jesus the word of life. And he says this, the life appeared. The word of life, the life appeared. And this is of critical, critical importance because it separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet in this way. Other prophets, other religious leaders say this, I'm going to show you the path to life. I'm going to show you the way you can achieve life. I'm going to show you how you can get eternal life. Do this. Follow this way. Go this way. But Jesus is totally different because he isn't the way to life. He is life. He is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is all of those things in one. He comes to give us life, but... He is life, and only God in the flesh could make this claim. In other words, only God can say, I am life. I mean, you may be able to say, I am alive, or I can help someone live better, but you can't say, I am life itself. Only God can make that claim. And John is saying, Jesus is this. Jesus is fully God but at the same time was fully man because I touched him, I heard him, I was with him, I experienced him. Now some people may be saying, wait a minute, this is just doctrine. I mean, what does it matter if Jesus was fully God and fully man? Why why can't I just believe in the teachings of Jesus and follow the teachings of Jesus and think that by going the way that Jesus says to go that I can get life? Because that's not the gospel. That is not what Christianity teaches. And many within the church, I think, have gotten stumbled, have stumbled over this idea that, look, Jesus came, he had great teachings, I follow Jesus in the sense I do what he taught me to do, I live the life he taught me to live, I do this, and then I get saved. But the gospel of grace, of salvation, is this, that God came as a man fully God and fully man, and he gives us salvation as a gift, a free gift, nothing we can earn on our own. My wife was with some family members about a month ago, and she has a real burden for some people in her family, was sharing with one of her family members about Christ and the gospel of salvation, and This particular family member just was very blunt with her and said, listen, Kathy, I don't want to hear this stuff about Jesus anymore. I've lived a good life, and if that's not good enough, so be it. Now, see, that is a doctrine. See, a doctrine means you believe something and you act on it to be true. That's doctrine. And all of it, every single one of you, the person on your right, the person on your left, the ones behind you, everybody has a doctrine of life. That's called the doctrine of works. That says, 
I can live a good enough life that God's going to have to let me into heaven because I've lived a good life. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done anything bad. I don't steal. I, you know, I mess up here and there, but overall, the good outweighs the bad. Therefore, God's got to let me into heaven. That is a doctrine, a doctrine of works. The doctrine of grace says this, no matter how hard you work, you can't be good enough. Because all sin is sin in God's sight, and the wages of sin, what you deserve for your sin, is this, death. Well, are you telling me, Pastor, if I just screwed up one time that I deserve death? Yeah, I am, and it's much worse than that. And it's much worse than that from a biblical standpoint. You were born into sin. So before you could even screw up, you already sinned. Because it's part of who you are. It's part of your nature. You're born into an old system that says you're a sinner. But God's grace is this. By his free gift, Jesus, who is life, came and gives you the gift of life, if you will but receive him as the one who forgives your sins and leads your life. He really lived, he really died, he really rose from the dead. We just sang our hearts out about that. I believe that's the message of grace. He really is God. And he came in human flesh in order that we could have life. That's the premise of John's gospel. That's the premise of this letter, is that we receive life, relationship with God, because of what Jesus did for us. Which leads me to the second point. It's not just about us going to heaven when we die. God wants to give us fellowship now. We receive fellowship with God. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're being told here that it's not enough to just believe in God, or even to obey him. The message of the incarnation, which is the term that means Jesus, God, became man, the incarnation, Jesus being God and coming to earth as a man, is so that God could have a personal relationship with you and that you could know him personally. Here's the point. God God doesn't want to just be a concept in your life. God just doesn't want to be some truth. God doesn't want to be just some judge. God doesn't want to be some distant creator who did something and now has turned you loose. God wants to be in a relationship with you. John, in this book, is saying this. We have fellowship with God, and because we have fellowship with God, we can have fellowship with one another. How how does this fellowship work? How does this relationship work? Well, when I come to know Christ as the one who leads my life, forgives my sins, God's presence comes in and dwells me in the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God doesn't just leave me hanging out there. He doesn't say, okay, I'll do the work of saving you. In other words, I'll do the work of bringing you into relationship, but now you've got to do this as best you can on your own. Now, the truth is, by his spirit, and John is going to talk about this, that relationship with God and relationship with one another is empowered by God's spirit that indwells me. In other words, 
I can like you pretty well. I mean, really. Most of you are fairly likable people. And, and, and I'm not just paid to like you, but I, I like you pretty well just because of who you are. But honestly, when it comes to my physical flesh, I get tired, I get weary, We're, we don't all have the same personality types. How can I really love you beyond just a loving tolerance or a command that I have to love you? Well, in and of myself, I can't. But God's spirit, God's power, God's presence indwells me. And John says, Paul says also, but John is going to say, listen, this is the truth. This is how I know I have God's presence in me and it's at work within me is that I can love people well. He's also going to flip it and say, if I don't love people well, what does that say? Then there's something wrong with God's presence in me. Or maybe God's presence isn't existing in me. Or maybe I'm not giving myself to God's presence at work in my life. In other words, we can't work hard enough to love each other well. But God, God's promise is that if you come to know me, I'll put my presence within you then I'll have relationship with you because, I mean, he's in us, right? God's relation, we can have relationship with him because his spirit indwells us. This past week, Thursday morning, Kathy was um, fixing something for, Matt, for Adam, some earphones or something, headphones that had broken. And so she had this bottle of super glue out and she was gluing some stuff with super glue. And, you know, Kathy, when she opens like a thing of super glue, it's such a hassle to open it that she's like, hey, what else can I glue while I've got this thing open? Uh, some other, so she's asking me, is there anything else I can glue, super glue? And that stuff amazes me, super glue. I mean, you can glue your fingers together. You can, you know, glue things. You can glue like a pet plate to your hand. I mean, it, it is, the bond is so, you got to be really careful how you work with this stuff. I know this is a terrible analogy, but... The Spirit is really the superglue that holds our relationships together. In other words, we can't do it in and of ourselves. But his bond between us is so strong that it goes beyond our own imaginations. It goes beyond our ability to do. It goes beyond our strength. He, he, his presence is in us. God went to great lengths to have fellowship with you. He sent his only son to die for you. He sent the presence of the Spirit of God. We have fellowship with God, according to what John is saying, and now we can have fellowship with one another because of his Spirit that indwells us. So we receive salvation by the grace of God. It's a gift from him. Now we have the presence of the Spirit of God indwelling us, and we can have relationship with God and relationship with one another. Third point. And this is where the rubber is going to kind of meet the road for John. We can, know, we can know this love that matters. John is really called the apostle of love because he talks about love so very often, both within the gospel itself and in these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In John 3.16, the passage you probably memorized first uh, when you started going to church or from a child, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
In 1 John 4, you're going to see John reiterates what Jesus says. This is, John 3.16 remembers when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Master, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, You've got to be born again. He says, How can I be born again? Do I have to enter my mother's womb? That doesn't make any sense. I, I don't see it. Jesus says, You've got to be born spiritually uh, to, to be born again. And then says to him, that, This is the reason I've come. For God so loved the world that he sent me, his only son, so that whoever believes in me may not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel. God is a God of love. 1 John 4 is going to say, God is love. But here's the truth about love that really matters. John also makes it clear that God is a God of light. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John's going to present a balanced truth that God is both love and light. Now let me say this, I I hear going around this doctrine, so to speak, a lot today. Look, we just got to love. All we got to do is love. God is love as if that were the only characteristic of God, that God is love. But there are a lot of characteristics of God about who God is life, God is love, God is light as well. In other words, in his love, in his love, God's holiness prevails. Let me see if I can word it like this. God is light, meaning that he's purely holy. No sin exists. So how am I going to get in God's presence? If God is truly holy, light, and nothing dark can exist in his presence, how am I, who has sinned, going to get into his presence? Well, that's the message of love. God, who is light, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on my behalf so that I could become light and love and be in God's presence. That's the gospel. That's the message. I can't do it on my own, but God sent his son to do it on my behalf. Here's the love that matters. Knowing God's love that transforms my life then translates in how I live. In other words, John is going to say, you can't say you love God and then not live like what God tells you to live. I can't just do whatever I want. I follow God's commands. This is how I know love, I love God. I do what he tells me to do. You understand? It matters how we live. Light and love go together. They are both coexisting characteristics of who God is. He's going to say, if I say I, I, I love God but don't love others, then the truth's not in me because I'm going to become love. Also, he says that, All sin is lawlessness and wrongdoing, so I can't say I love God and then act like however I please. We all have a desire for love. Every one of us in this room, we have a desire to have love that matters at work in our lives. In the early part of the 1900s, there was a a woman who was an author by the name of Dorothy Sayers, um, she, she lived until the 1950s, I think. She was one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford, was a writer of mystery and detective stories. 
Her most famous character was Lord Peter Whimsey, who was an aristocrat who solved mysteries. And you can only get away with that if you live in Britain, um, to have a, an aristocrat who solves mysteries. She wrote a series of novels about Lord Peter Whimsey, and in the middle of her series of novels, suddenly a woman appears by the name of Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is not particularly good-looking, but she is smart, and she is said, now listen to this, she's said to be one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford, and she was to be a writer of mystery and detective novels. She and Peter meet they solve some mysteries together, they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. Most people have said that Sayers looked into the world she created, she looked into the character that she had created, she fell in love with him, and she wrote herself into the story. It's really very moving. But God has actually, in fact, done that. The God who created us and knows us. He knows we've gone astray. He knows we're a mess. He's looked into the world he created, and he wrote himself into the play. He wrote himself into the story of our lives. Why? Because he loves us so much. God dealt with the barrier of sin that he couldn't overlook because he's light by the ultimate act of love. We receive his love. We walk out that love by loving. Let me say this again. We walk out that act of love by loving others. And if you're like me, loving can be challenging. Come on now. I mean, loving is not as easy as we think it is. You're going to be given an opportunity this week at some time to express love to someone when they are unlovable. This past week, again, Thursday morning with the superglue, I was getting ready to leave the house, and I was going to go get some uh, water so that I could go get some, take my vitamins. The way our house is situated I don't know if I can draw it up for you, but the sink and dishwasher are on one side, and then in a corner cabinet, um, there are all the dishes. So on one side are my glasses, on one side of the corner are plates and saucers and, you know, all that stuff. And then there's a dishwasher. Well, uh, Kathy was loading the dishwasher, so the dishwasher door was open, so I went around the dishwasher to get to a glass to get get a glass of water. I got the glass, and I turned quickly, and someone had left the cabinet door, upper cabinet door, where the plates are open, which I ran into suddenly. <clears throat> I, I didn't cuss, but I was like, man. And so as I went by, I, I shut the cabinet with, some force. Are you with me? I shut it with force on my way to the, on the way to the fridge to get my water. And all of a sudden, I hear this noise. 
like a rushing stream of breakage coming. And evidently what has happened is when I shut the cabinet door with some force, a plastic clip on the third shelf broke, which caused that shelf to fall on the next shelf, which fell on the next shelf, so that suddenly out of our cabinet is a rushing river of dishes, hitting the granite countertop, hitting the dishwasher, hitting the tile floor. I was just stunned. (laughs) I mean, you can't even move in that moment. You're just looking at it. I'm like, how in heaven's name do we have so many dishes in this cabinet? It was horrible. I mean, it was horrible. My wife was at the table. I mean, witnesses the whole, there's nowhere to hide. I can't say. It just happened. Dishes all over the floor. Two boxes full of broken dishes. In that moment, my wife, through her tears, as she picks up a keepsake plate my mom had given her that was now broken, has the opportunity to either love me or not love me. Fortunately, our marriage is not built on dishes. Because if it was, I'd be here all alone today. (laughs) Fortunately, our marriage is built on God's grace, God's love. You know, I I, I was sorting, I was trying to sort through the dishes. I didn't even know what to do. You know, what do I do with all these broken dishes? I found one plate that wasn't broken. Kathy, look, it's a plate not broken. Her response, I hate that plate. And all I could think to say, and I praise God I didn't say it, was at that moment, hey, I think I found a use for the superglue. <laughs> it's all that's going through my head at that moment. I think we're going to need some more superglue here. <laughs> so if you have any kind of ideas what you can do with boxes of broken dishes, please let me know. I need help. Life is not built on stuff. Hello? Life is not built on stuff. Life is not built on jobs. Life is not built on resources. But we many times gauge our love for one another based on externals. We're talking about here a love that goes beyond measure. That goes beyond knowing. We need to walk in this love. And John then gives us a way. We can walk in complete joy. 1 John 1, 4, we write this to make our joy complete. Some other versions, like the New King James Version, say this, all these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So there's some controversy. We really don't know. Is John saying, my joy can be full, our joy, my joy, or is it your joy? Hey, you know, both truths are true. I mean, if we receive God's message of salvation by grace, we have fellowship with God, we walk in true love, then we can experience true joy. Many of us, many of us 
don't understand what real joy is all about because we, again, build our joy based on circumstances and situations rather than what really matters, having this foundation of, having this foundation of joy. So if our circumstances go up and they're good, we're happy, right? We have joy. Things go bad, not so much. Joy is gone from my life. A number of years ago, I went to a, um, I went to a doctor's appointment, and I, I don't really know how to tell the story. Um, I'll try to be delicate as I tell the story, but I, I told it before, but just, I, I have, like, toenail issues. I know that's gross, but hang with me for a second. I have toenail issues, and so my doctor had said, oh, you've got a fungus on your toenail. I mean, some of us have them. Sorry. So he just said, the medicine you have to take to get rid of this toenail issue is much worse than just having the toenail issue. If it doesn't bother you, don't worry about it because you don't want to take the medicine because it could hurt your liver and do all of this sort of stuff to you. And I'm like, you know, you're right. My toenail doesn't really bother me. It just looks ugly and I don't really care because I have a wife who loves me even when I break the dishes. So anyway, I didn't worry about it too much. Well, then in the paper, I read about um, they were going to introduce at UAB some new medicine that wasn't supposed to be as bad for you, and they were looking for people who might volunteer to come do this study. So I said, oh, great, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to go see if this this stuff works. So I go down to UAB. I make an appointment. I go in, and so they have to examine your feet, your toenails, to see if you're... They go through this big quiz, you know, all these questions, but, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm going to get my toenails fixed, and not only that, it's going to be for free. It's going to be great. I'm just going to be a part of this study. So I go in, and, you know, this poor nurse who has to, this is her job, investigate people's toenails uh, to see if they can be part of this study. She's looking at my toenails. She says, you know, I don't think you're going you're, you're, you're gonna to be a part of the study. And I'm like, well, why not? And she goes, well, this, I don't think this toenail is a fungus. I don't think that's the issue here. But let me go get Dr. Blah Blah, because she's the leading toenail expert in the country. I, I didn't even know there was such a thing. As the leading toenail expert in the country, she goes, gets Dr. Blah Blah. She comes in, she looks at my toenail, and she goes, oh, you know, this re- you don't have a fungus at all. This is just trauma from running. Your toenails are just damaged from running, and it's just no big deal. So, okay. She's, uh, so what you're saying is, there's nothing I can do for this other than stop running. She goes, that's right, but if it's not bothering you, don't worry about it, which I've heard twice now. Great. I'm, I'm happy. I'm still fine. I really don't care. Then she looks over at my other foot, and she goes, hey, what is this? I'm like, what, what do you mean? And there's some sort of black dot under a toenail that I have. And I, I, it's been there a little while, but I think it's just like a blood blister or something. I don't think it's a really big deal. She goes, this is really concerning to me. And I'm like, like really concerning how? She said, like, really concerning because if you get a mole or something underneath the toenail, it could be a melanoma, which could signal cancer, which could be really, really, really bad. I said, okay. She said, I want to take this toenail off. Sorry. Take this toenail off so I can see what what is there. I said, okay, well, I'll schedule an appointment. I'm sorry if some of you are about to pass out. Just hang with me through the story. It gets worse than this. Hey, just hang on. If you need some water, Andy, here you go. I know pregnant women may. So uh, I go in. I, I, she said to me, I don't even know where I was in the story. 
I also said, when do I need to make an appointment? She goes, oh, no, you don't understand. We're going upstairs right now. You know, this is something you can't wait on. We're going to... So, listen, I'm going for a free toenail study. <laughs> I'm dying in, like, minutes, you know? I mean, it's like joy, no joy. Free, free meds to heal my toenails to, you know, you might as well call your wife, it's all over, kind of thing. I go upstairs, and... You know, UAB is a teaching hospital, so word now gets out that some dude might have cancer on his foot. It's like the room is filled with these students just looking at my toenail, waiting waiting to see what this malignant melanoma on my foot is going to look like. And so they're getting my toenail ready to take it off, and and, uh, the, the, the nurse next to me says something like, hey, do you need anything? And I said, is there anybody here who believes in prayer? I mean, really, I said to her, is there anybody here who believes in prayer? And she goes, well, I do. And I said, well, would you mind praying for me? And she goes, no, I'll pray for you. So med students waiting for me to die. Uh, Nurse praying for me. Um, And so, you know, just peace returned when she prayed for me, honestly. Sweet nurse. Thank God for nurses. And she just prayed for me. Um, to, to have peace. Well, sure enough, they take my toenail off. It's horrible. And, and the doctor, as soon as they take it off, she goes, it's a blood blister. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> All the med students, they had joy, no joy now. <laughs> Me, no joy, joy. Why? Because our joy is so often based on circumstances, is it not? We have to understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength. By his might, by his power, by his empowering presence, we truly can have joy in our lives. This past week, you may have read that President Jimmy Carter has been diagnosed with malignant melanoma on his brain. It's, okay, the cancer has moved to his brain. This is what 90-year-old Jimmy Carter said. I have had a wonderful life. I'm ready for anything, and I'm looking forward to a new adventure. It is in the hands of God whom I worship. Hallelujah. You know, that is our life. If we experience, and they said his whole press conference, which went on, you would not have known he had just received a death diagnosis, that he was just joyful, that his, his voice was weak from the treatments he's getting, but... There was no, like, sorrow, sadness, this is horrible. Why? Because he understood where his joy resided. The eternal word, Jesus Christ, has burst onto the scene of humanity to give us life and fellowship and love. And in these things, we will find true joy. He's going to speak of more joy in this letter, but he's laying out the foundation that you will never know joy until you know Jesus. If you're here today and you've never received this Jesus, I'm not just talking about the Jesus, the storybook Jesus. I'm not talking about the the one who came. Some shepherds saw him and 
He lived a good life and some bad men killed him. I'm talking about the Jesus who was God in flesh, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross, died in order that our sins could be forgiven and we could have fellowship with God. I want to say to you today, you can receive this Jesus and he'll change your life. You'll follow him. You'll love him. He'll love you. You can experience true joy in life. Receive him today. If you already are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to say this. By the power of the Spirit, love one another. By the power of the Spirit, walk in light. Obey his commands. By the power of the Spirit, receive fellowship with God and joy that is yours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you this morning for all you're doing, all you've done in our lives. Oh, God, we just give you praise. We give you honor. I want to pray first of all for those, Lord, who, who are here today who may not know you, Jesus, as the one who forgives their sins and rules their lives. I pray that, Spirit of God, you draw them to the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are here that know Christ, but may be some things have been pressing in on their lives. Maybe the enemy is accusing and truths or things that aren't truth have been becoming a part and hooked into our hearts. I pray, God, they would be removed and we would walk in light and love, fellowship and joy today. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. You are everything to us. You are life. In Jesus' name, amen.